Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I am joined today by my dear friend, Yash Singri. You can connect with Yash at his website, Yashas Singri, Y-A-S-H-A-S-S-I-N-G-R-I.com and his LinkedIn page. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And in this episode, Yash has selected the organization Mid-Atlantic Vipassana Association. And he speaks to his personal experience with Mid-Atlantic Vipassana Association towards the end of the episode. So please stay tuned for that and please join me in donating. All of this is linked in the show notes. Yash and I decided to have this conversation because Yash wanted to share openly about his story. And trigger warning, Yash's story contains trauma. It contains some things that might be really hard to hear, but also in my estimation are really important to share. And when we don't share the things that we've been through, a lot of times it triggers shame, it triggers isolation, we feel alone in our experience. And Yash has really courageously decided to open up about his really challenging past. And he also talks about what's possible on the other side of that and talks about what he stands for as a human and as a coach these days and how being willing to look at the tough traumas of his past and his challenging history has created a life and allowed a life of joy and exhilaration even in a lot of ways that Yash couldn't have ever fathomed not that long ago. It's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this work. I really know that if we do healing work, the inner peace and aliveness that we are all seeking is so much more accessible than if we try and plow through our life and seek external results and validation from other people. And Yash's story is a, a real testament to the power and potency of this work. This conversation is very wide ranging. It includes a lot of the influences of how Yash sees himself and sees the profession of coaching. He talks a lot about meditation, peak performance, and the way that I experience Yash, this is what I love so much about Yash. The way that I experience Yash is that he's this really incredible blend of tactical systems thinking, data-driven pragmatics with heart-centered, loving, gentle energy. And I think that that is such a powerful combination of things in any person and definitely a powerful combination of things in a coach. You're going to get a lot out of this conversation, both from Yash's story and from the tools and tactics that he brings into this work. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with my really good friend, Yash Singri. My dear friend, Yash, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. Thanks for having me, man. It's great to be here. It feels weird to give that obligatory kind of sign on when we've had so many different conversations together, but it's, I don't know, in some ways it's a ritual and it, it feels like it teleports me into doing this 
long form deep dive that we're about to do this exploration. And we have so many beautiful things that we could talk about, Yash, but I'm really interested in parsing through each other's stories. We were just saying right before hitting record here that when we speak about things or challenges that we've had in our past, it releases the grip of maybe shame is the word. That's certainly the word that came up for me. And so I would love to talk a little bit about each of our stories. And and one really powerful on-ramp into story, personal story, is to understand what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. So it's the same question I ask in the beginning of every interview. And I will ask you, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Thanks for asking me that. Great, beautiful question. You know, I I usually hesitate to talk about this. I don't really talk much about my childhood or my family because it wasn't great. So, you know, I guess I just feel obligated to say that this is not a pleasant story. And it there are many triggers in here around physical abuse and other forms of abuse and, and suicide as well. So, you know, I, I feel the need to share that just in case to, to let everybody know what's coming. My, my dinner table, put very simply, Mike, was it was terror. It was awful. It was this constant feeling of of panic and and more more than panic, it was terror. It was this con- all consuming feeling of survival level fear. That's what it was like. Yeah. So I'll I'll also put a footnote in here around trigger warnings that I'll I'm, I just wrote a note in my notes to make sure that I forewarn in the introduction for this episode. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. So we I don't want to invite anyone into this conversation that it's going to bring someone into a place where they feel so disoriented that they can't even listen to the words that you're saying. And so I'll I'll make sure that peppered in the beginning and now based on the words that you've said and what I'm saying now that there's a hopefully an established level of safety of if you don't feel comfortable, no need to listen to this one. And so that said, I I do want to spend some time talking about your story. It doesn't have to be about the dinner table. It doesn't have to relate to that specific, you know, daily memory that you have. But in preparation for this conversation, I always ask folks who join this podcast if there's anything that you don't want to talk about, so anything that's 100% off limits, if there's anything you 100% absolutely do want to discuss, and several other questions, but in the 100% I want to discuss, you simply wrote my story. And I prompted you before this to, to think a little bit about what feels most important about your story that you want to share in this platform. And I'll ask you the same thing now, because I imagine the exercise, I mean, the, we did a grounding exercise. That's why exercise was in my head. I imagine that a little bit of time together. And for some reason, there's something magical about hitting record button. Something might shift. So what, what does feel important in this moment right now to share about your story and and we can go from there. Yeah. So I think that, I think that the core of it, and and thanks for that, that beautiful reminder that I wanted to share this. I think what's important for me is 
is to just share the rawness of it, you know, and, and given we've established safety by this point in the conversation, just to share how raw and and horrible it was to, and, and then to paint a picture of how I am where I am now, which is in a materially different place and the journey to get there. Yeah, so you know, my my childhood was filled with almost daily physical and emotional abuse, and there was some sexual abuse as well. You know, my, it was a lot, it was from my dad. He, I, I think what had bipolar disorders, some form of undiagnosed psychosis and yeah, and, and took it out on my mother, my sister and I, and there was, you know, there's so much wrapped into that. My, my, both my mom and my dad are first generation immigrants from India. They, knew each other for a week before they got married. And then a week later moved to America where they didn't know anybody at all. So you know, two weeks into knowing someone you're moving across the world. It's really hard to get to know someone in that, who they really are at that period of time. Yeah. And, you know, my mom told me that a, a month after they moved, he started hitting her and, and then my sister and I were born and, a lot of my childhood, for for most until I was seventeen years old, basically was constant, constantly living in this environment of tremendous degradation of every of every sort. You know, I, I had it proven to me through physical punishment that it was better to shame myself and feel worthless than to experience joy or be compassionate with myself. And a lot of that was due to, you know, if my dad was feeling a certain way, I, I just remember these, these instances where I'd be smiling and then he would punch me and like, what, what are you smiling for? And, and, and so this was a lot of my childhood and, and that's, it helped, it developed, developed these parts of myself that were very used to treating my and shaming and expecting love to be delivered in a way that was abusive and that like no one could love me for who I was because I at my core am fatally flawed and it's it felt like a war I think that's what my childhood felt like it felt like a constant war and and every day was was brutal and grueling you know and then you know 17. You know, one other thing that happened, there's sort of the, my specific family context. And then there's also this culturally Indian immigrant context where there were roles of, this is something that I learned recently, roles of traditional masculinity that were placed on me. So when I would go and ask my, talk to my family about what was happening, one, you know, they didn't do much. And two, a lot of what I heard was that, I had to be the man of the family, the man of the house, this very toxic role, take care of your mother and sister. This is, mind you, to a 10-year-old child. And so there's another layer on top of all of what was happening that was just utter and complete loneliness. Felt like no one really saw me. No one really heard me. Some of my teachers guessed at what was happening, but nothing ever really came from it. Because, you know, another thing that happened was, I think this is common in abusive households, is my dad had convinced all of us that if we ever went to the authorities, that 
something even worse was going to happen. Like we were going to the foster care system and my sister would be abused even worse. And like they would, my parents would go to jail. And, and so there was, it was a very trapping environment along alongside that loneliness of somehow needing to present a face of strength and support and, and having, well, having an internal landscape that was just completely dissonant with that. So yeah, then 17 rolled around and, you know, my, my mom was about to, to kill my dad. I'm sorry. Other way around. My dad was about to kill my mom, like really, like really severely hurting her. And, and I called the cops, you know, such a simple act looking back at it, but it felt like, it, it felt like the most dangerous thing. You know, they came, they arrested him and I thought it would all get better. But I, you know, I remember the, the first, you know, thing that happened after that was, and I, and I love my mom, but you know, one, what the first thing she said to me was you've ruined our family, which, you know, was, was horrifying to hear. And I believed it because of all of the stories my dad had told me. And she believed it too, because of what he told her looking now. She is very, you know, she's, she's very happy that he's not around anymore. Things are, things are a lot better now, but yeah. And so, you know, what happened after that was I went from this phase of life where there was constant danger and threat to a phase of life where I expected it all to just go away. Right. And, and of course it didn't, you know, I, I have complex PTSD and, you know, I went through college just kind of expecting things to just attaching my anxiety, all of these feelings from the PTSD to what was happening in my life. And, and, and they didn't go away. And, you know, well, I've said a lot here. There's more to the story. I think I think of my story in two chapters. There's basically like until I turned 21, there's the, the chapter until 17, which I've told you about. There's 17 to 21, and then there's 21 to now. I, let me pause it at 17 to 21. I said okay. a lot. Mm-hmm. I there's there's many things I could reflect on, and there's, I mean, definitely a, a big part of me wants to just sit back and, and allow you to continue sharing. I, I think that maybe one of many times I'll say this is I just appreciate the courage that you have to share this openly. And and what I know is that everyone's story, you actually said before we jumped on here that you're you're not special. And what you meant by that was what you've done in your life and what you've been through in your life, it's someone else has gone through the same thing and is able to replicate the ways that you have gotten through and repaired and healed around them too. And yeah. only by sharing stories like this can that is that possible a lot of times. And so I, I just want to, I thank you again. I applaud the courage in the way that you've obviously been able to take a look at this in your own life, you wouldn't be able to speak to me right now or to any audience of any size or to look at it in your, by yourself without the really courageous, heroic act of looking inward and, and doing your own repair and healing work around that. And it probably won't be the last time I say that in the conversation. So I'll throw that in now, just for starters. A couple of reflections that I, that I have about this one is the damage of unhealthy expression of masculinity 
and and patriarchy is thrown around very sometimes loosely these days. It's just like a, a catch-all word of of things that we can blame. But this is in th this is a textbook definition of toxic masculinity and toxic patriarchy. A a violent male-dominated fear-driven pain lashing expression of like it, this is if if you don't do what i say then things shit's going to go down and things are going to get fucked up and i think that that affects that affects everyone in our society because a lot of the systems right now are supportive of not not necessarily violence but of toxic masculinity so i'm just going to throw that in there Another reflection I have as you were, as you were sharing is, you know, there's a, there's this American ideal of sorts around like having a smile on your face and, and being good and okay all the time. And it, what I'm struck by is if we actually, even for three minutes, got to know why someone has a tough time smiling or what their pain is or things that they've gone through in their life, we've, we wouldn't put all this pressure on like, Ooh, like, you know, that person's not pleasant to be around. They don't, they don't smile yeah. a lot. Right. Yeah. That seems like it sparks. I, I'll pause here because that seems like it brings something up for you and that we can, well, we can bounce around in a, in maybe a nonlinear way. I would love to hear the chapters about 17 to 21 and 21 to now and about your healing, but what, yeah, what's, what was sparked just there? So, so much. Yeah. It, it's a real expression of toxic masculinity. And you know, the thing is, as, as a kid, this is, this is what I learned about masculinity. And there are so many other elements of it too. There's an expression of religion here where I was raised Hindu and we would go to the, the temple. And, and I remember one distinct experience of the the word for pastor or rabbi or, or whatever, the, the corollary to that in Hinduism is a Swami, Swamiji, was like a religious head. And I remember them saying, talking to me about how my dad was this great person for mm. donating money and being involved in religious activity and you know and and telling me that I should feel lucky to be with him I, I distinctly remember just as you know as a kid just not fully understanding why but feeling like something was wrong there like this is not an ideal to be looked up to but also like yeah this is what I, that's what I thought masculinity was not necessarily violence but but power and domineering and mm. and if like I, I had this visual of crushing, right? like crushing the opposition. It was this like very like brutal battle oriented way of being. And, and it was just incredibly toxic. It, you know, the things that just like this, this had pervaded through, through school as well. Just like, like throwing around these words, like you're a pussy. My dad would say that to me a lot. You're a pussy, you're a chicken. Right? And I internalized that, you know, that, expressing vulnerability in any way what what you know it's like i would cry right if i'm like getting hurt i would cry and i would get hit for crying and you'd be like you're a pussy like don't cry which taught me to to like keep it in to suppress all my emotions and only show those that it exhibited some degree of power like anger especially anger right and and yeah and i think the 
the other thing that you mentioned around just like, oh, remind me what the second point was. There was a point around toxic masculinity. What was the other reflection? Well, I, I actually think that in, in an interesting way that you have, you have amplified that point with the example of, mm. I'll get to what I was saying, but the, mm. your, your dad outwardly being someone who was donating to religious organizations and getting outward praise to me actually rhymes a lot with what I was saying about there's an image that we put out into the world a lot of times. And so we're, there's an American standard at least this is my experience of being American and, and being someone who goes out into the world that if someone isn't smiling and really friendly, that yes. we, we don't really take a pause and go, there might be a really good reason for that being true, right? That that person might be in a lot of pain. We, we, we make up stories about someone who doesn't smile a lot as like, they're not friendly, they're X, XYZ thing. And I, what I was pointing at is it, it really can help to understand that people can go through a lot of pain and there's, it might be really, really good reason that someone has a hard time smiling. But why, why I think mm -hmm. that actually is with what you were sharing about your dad is there's, there's so much emphasis placed on the image that we have out there and not on the worlds that we are cultivating in here. And I'm, I'm pointing to my body and my, if you will, my inner world right now. And so this is, I've heard many examples, uh, they're not my stories to share, but I've heard lots of men open up about the unhealthy expression of fatherhood and manhood that was, that their father had in their household and the way that they were revered and loved in the outer world because they knew how to get people to like them and to wield influence. Yeah. yeah how to play the game. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That it it is so that's such a great point that we're it, it, you know I, I learned this as a kid too in school one of the things that took it took me so long to take my own mental health to, to just bring an awareness to it of the reality of my situation the reason one of the reasons behind that was because I was so externally successful I graduated in the top 20 kids in my class out of 700 it got a full scholarship to to college everyone constantly lauded me like something is going well here you know like your parents are taking good care of you you're you're doing great like this is this is the way that it was like a model to be looked at and that was so dissonant with my internal environment right where it was like this is misery like this is absolute misery and that's what i thought life was and so it painted this picture of life for me that was essentially in order to be happy you have to be miserable and project happiness mm -hmm. and that all happiness is is fake right and it's just a farce and 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 yeah i think that was like there were so many examples i remember like my first job was at mcdonald's and i remember having a bad day one day it was pretty bad and and not smiling and i was i probably looked depressed because i was and I remember someone just driving through the the, the window, so like some someone's mom uh, driving, you know, ordering something. And she was like, "You look so sad. Why don't you smile?" And and I did, but I remember it infuriating me a little bit. Just just like how why do I have to present a face to you in order to make you feel better? Right? And I think that's 
you're hitting on a, a beautiful point here that it seems like one of the conditions of being American or, or existing in the West is to make others around you feel good. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't have a capacity. Many people don't really have a strong capacity to deal with, to handle negative emotions when they're presented to them. And that's, I didn't either. I, I, I didn't either. When people would show me anger or other emotions, I would say similar things like you should go do something about that or why don't you smile or, or take care of yourself or whatever. Right. And and the more we do that, the more we push away genuine connection. And that's what I learned as a kid. I think what a lot of people have learned. Mm-hmm. I want to, I want to just say, maybe this is a, something vulnerable too, is that, that this is still something that happens for me where I, have not in a moment, I might not have the capacity to be with someone in the pain that they are in. So in the in the McDonald's example, at least my projection of what's happening there is when if someone goes into the drive through window and says, hey, well, you don't look very happy. Why don't you put a smile on your face? What they're really saying, what I'm hearing from what they're saying is I am not, I can't tolerate the fact that you are uncomfortable. So please be comfortable or happy because that's an emotion that I'm okay with. Yeah. Or maybe another way is I'm not okay with you not being okay. And that happens for all of us sometimes. So that's, you know, there's a, a level of compassion that I have that maybe that woman drove home and, and felt terrible about the way that she said that to you and she was having a bad day. But I think it's, it's important to understand that it's a really valuable skill for us to be able to be with our own discomfort, which therefore helps other people be in in their own pain, discomfort, negative emotions, air quotes. So I I, want to say that, but a place I want to go with you right now, because this, this just popped in for me. A lot of times, Yash, when you and I jump on calls, a very simple, how are you? will give you, you can answer it in a very measured, clean, way there's no charge behind the words that you're saying in terms of tonality and you're opening up about something that you're having a tough time with and a feeling that you're having in your body and uh, the the level of self-awareness is very impressive you're still someone in your 20s so it's not that much right you're in your 20s yeah yeah Yeah. it's not that much time has passed biologically I would love to hear you talk about, there's so many things we could talk about, but how like that there's lots of work that goes into you being able to have a check-in like that and say, this is what's happening. And here's the anger that I'm feeling. And here's something that happened from a childhood where nothing was okay, really, it sounds like. So how have you built the capacity to to speak that way, to speak candidly and in a non-triggered, non-reactive way. Yeah, thank you for asking this question. This this gets into the other chapters of my life. So 17 to 21 was a, a period of reckoning for me. If I if I described, you know, zero to 17 as a period of, of terror, 17 to 21 was a reckoning. And it was it was a reckoning with the reality of what it was like to be me. And and the words I didn't know at the time, the framing I didn't know was understanding my nervous system mm. and how it worked. Right? And, and that's my current interpretation of what we are as humans is just 
nervous systems attached to brains that cognize what in the nervous system. That's it. And and what my nervous system was going through was 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 living in that reality. There's so many examples of of repressed parts of myself. And that was the only way I knew how to deal with what was going on was to dissociate from my reality and suppress these parts of myself that that I, I just couldn't relate to. And, and and so that's what that's what it felt like for me. It was it was going through college, you know, at the apparent level, seeking every way to to get stability and get out of my house to to remove myself from those conditions. And you know, while this was happening, there's you know, my dad ran left the country, to, went to India to avoid getting arrested for about a year, and then came back to America. And, and my, what I, you know, what I didn't know at the time was, and this is true of a lot of immigrant households that my dad controlled all the finances. So when he got arrested, he refused to share any information with my mom. And so she was freaking out, right. And to just know complete ambiguity and uncertainty around the financial situation, not sure where all this money that she's been making has gone needing to support me through college, my sister through high school, about to go to college. So I didn't have the context at the time, but what happened was one day I got a call from my sister. So about a year after, a year and a half after I called the cops on my dad saying he's back. What had happened was behind our backs, my dad had come back into the same house that my mom and sister were living, living in under the premise of some sort of medical condition that he was struggling with. And, 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 you know, that was, this was the the second wave of the war was not physically being abused, but, but really like it cemented this ideal, this part of me as needing to take care to be the man of the family. Right. And, and some of this was for, for real reasons. I was the only person that's physically bigger than my dad, my mom and my sister or smaller women, and he could easily overpower them. So, so a lot of, this phase of life was just, it It was brutal in a different way. It wasn't survival level terror. It was the, the terror of not having control over a situation that I desperately wanted control over. And throughout all this, you know, I could tell something was wrong. Something was up and I didn't, that I didn't want to feel this way. This all sort of came to a head. I studied abroad my last semester of senior year and I'm thankful for the experience, but I remember it was in Copenhagen and two hours before the flight was supposed to take off, I was standing in the airport with my mom and then told her, I'm not getting on this plane unless you kicked out of the house. And if you don't do it, I'm not getting on this plane because I, I don't want to be halfway around the world, completely unable to help if something happens. And at that point in time, she finally agreed to, to kick him out. And I went and had what I thought was a great experience, but, you know, there's, there's just all of the, all of the PTSD was still there. And, and, you know, I I was verging on alcoholism as a, as a way to cope and numb. And one of my good friends came and visited me and I just opened up to him about all this. I'd never opened up to anybody about it. And we just had an amazing conversation. And I just, I just remember being on a train from Madrid to Barcelona. It was like a three hour long train. And the whole three hours, he just sat there and listened 
and and held space in a beautiful way. And I was just there crying, opening up. And and he he asked me about therapy and meditation. I tried these things, but they never really seemed to hit. And and that was the first, that was the first, you know, he was the first person to really hear that and and hear what I was saying, which is you know, I'm in this deep, dark pit. There is no light. There is no light. And and I think but therapy and meditation are beautiful resources when there is a little bit of a light that you can move towards, when there's a little bit of hope. But there was no hope. And so it felt like these, this aimless thing for me. And what he suggested and what we did, and, and we, we came back and we took LSD together. And that was the first time in my life that I had been present for more than five minutes, really mm-hmm. present to my situation. And I didn't know how to describe it at the time, but I was just crying, like sitting on this, the, the ledge of this pool, just crying and and repeating, you know, it's all okay. It's all okay. And it all has always been okay. I didn't know what was happening at the time, but it was it was the light that I needed to see that there was a different way to live my life that wasn't complete misery that set me on the journey that started at 21 to to figure out how to create these conditions sustainably in my life. So, so that was the chapter of 17 to 21. And then where I am now, 21 onwards, I started working. I, I worked at a consulting firm out of school. It was an amazing experience. I learned a lot. I met some great people. It was also absolutely awful. You know, I Having been raised the way I was raised, this was arguably just as bad of an experience in some ways, in that it was you know thrown into these environments where I was working a ton. I, I, I it was well before COVID, and I created the stigma around myself, or whether it was in the environment, whatever. I didn't feel comfortable talking about what was going on in my life at all, and so you know I was angry and tired and triggered all the time. And, you know, I would have 10 to 15 flashbacks a day, dissociative flashbacks, and these would hit during meetings, things like that. And I would, I would lose the context, literally lose the context of taking notes. And so my performance really suffered and, and I knew something had to change. So this is when I sought out a therapist for the first time. And, you know, it was a grueling experience to try to find one. I had no idea what I was searching for. All I knew was I, they needed to take my insurance. They needed to be able to meet at like 6 p.m. on a Friday because that was the only time I was free. And and I filtered for PhDs because I thought they were the best, which is not the case at all. And, you know, what happened there then was it was this psychedelic experience that gave me the hope to to put that to go through some, some pretty grueling therapy. You know, there's one. Yeah, that was actually pretty funny. Like, what, what kickstarted this transition? I was watching Rick and Morty. I don't know if you've seen it. It's very I've funny heard show. of the show. Yeah. And there's an episode where they go to therapy. And, and the therapist is talking about how, you know, like, Rick, the, the, like, asshole scientist is, like, shitting on the therapist. He like, turns himself into a pickle because he doesn't want to go to therapy. And, and the therapist is just sitting there in a non-triggered, very very emotion, non-emotional way and, and is just talking about how therapy isn't this exciting thing. It's not this magic bullet that immediately makes you feel better. And it's just work like any other form of work. It is work and you show up and you do the work 
and see what happens. And that was exactly what I needed to hear in that moment because it, it, it made this experience of therapy for me more bearable in a way that's like, okay, this is just work. And I show up and I have faith that it's going to work out. And, and so that was what catalyzed that journey. And, you know, I, I did this form of therapy called EMDR, which is you know, trauma tr- therapy, especially for for people that have gone through some sort of trauma. Or, and and it was really brutal. It was, it was really really hard doing that and diving into the the worst experiences of my life and just sitting with them. But what came from it was this over time, just this beautiful like distancing very slowly very very slowly things just started to feel a little more distant and and it took six months for the first one to hit but this flood of emotion came out i remember in one session and things started to feel more distant and less triggering i worked with this therapist for two years and and went from having 10 to 15 dissociative flashbacks a day to maybe one a day and then one a week and maybe now one a month and also being resourced alongside all of this. I was, I, I, I find a lot of solace in books. And so I just read like an absolute maniac and read about meditation, experimenting with that, basically trying to find every single way to know myself and release the intensity of feeling that I was feeling. So this, that was the start of it. Let, let me pause there. I said a lot. There's, there's a lot more there, but pause it seems like josh maybe every single response that you have to my questions i I could go in 13 different ways but let's just start with a a really easy one because i always like to gather a list of books and and resources that have been helpful so emdr i'm going to already link in the show notes i also love to hear some books what what are some things that you dove into that became helpful resources for you yeah some amazing resources to begin with were well, the, a lot of philosophy. So, so the one I'll share from that, one of my favorite books ever was The Stranger by Albert Camus. That one's really good. It's it's It really, it helped me through a tough time of questioning whether my life was worth living. And I think it might resonate with a lot of, if, if people are going through this. Other resources, Headspace was a really, really amazing resource during that time. I, I think Andy Pudicombe has, has just created a lovely and and loving introduction to meditation that was incredible. I'm thinking of, of other resources. Waking up, I think, was the other one. This the, the by Sam Harris. Mm-hmm. Just a book on on understanding consciousness. And and you know, I, I think the other if I had to name one more Buddhism, I don't know which book I would recommend. Maybe why Buddhism is true. The spirituality in a non-religious context or or less ritualistic context, I'll say, is Buddhism is still religion, was extremely helpful for me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you have full permission throughout the rest of this conversation to pepper in other books and resources that have been helpful if they if they come up for you. But oh my goodness, there's there's so many reflections I want to have. So maybe With regard to the effect that LSD had for you, I want to, again, caveat that I am by no means a doctor. I am not prescribing any sort of treatment for anyone who's listening. I am just a guy who is offering my thoughts 
And Yash is a guy who is sharing his own personal experience. So getting that out of the way, I think everyone needs to do their own work and research around what's the right environment, who's the right people to do it with, the right communities, et cetera. But what it sounds like happened in your experience with LSD, and I've heard other people describe it in a similar manner, is that it's this, it's a portal through a lot of things that are our egoic conscious mind otherwise might not be able to understand. And in that portal, you are able to find a baseline of light that I'm okay. I'm not broken. I don't know if, if I don't remember the exact words that you said, but I received them as I'm good as I am. I'm not broken. And that became a new guiding light that I don't have to live in pain and abject terror for my whole life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's beautiful. And there's a lot of work that's being done around not just LSD, but other psychedelics around PTSD, a resource that really changed my mind about a lot of this. And it's a very rigorous book is called The Body Keeps the Score. I'm sure you're familiar with mm-hmm. it by Bessel van der Kolk. So I'll, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes as well. EMDR is in that book as well as just an understanding of what happens in the brain with PTSD. But I, I think another reflection I wanted to share is just around trauma. And I, I'm wondering if you could speak to this. My understanding of trauma, especially if it's really deeply traumatic, is that if something, if there's a scene in your life or something that's happening in your life in present day that in some way evokes the memory of the trauma, it almost is like an instant teleportation right back into that type of moment. So for example, if I was beaten really badly by my father when he was four and before he beat me, he would yell in a lot of anger. If I don't do my own healing work around that and I'm 35 years old and a man gets in my face and starts yelling at me. The trauma in, in a lot of ways probably is because it's unresolved is in me and almost in a way teleports me. I'm like frozen in time from that moment that I was four years old where he yelled at me before he beat me. And this is a hypothetical. This didn't actually happen to me, but I'm just wondering if you could speak to, I think this ties a lot to what you were saying about the nervous system as well, but your understanding of trauma and how that's helped you like unfreeze these things that were previously unbearable to look at. Because I, I, yeah. what I what I love about your story is that you've not only unfrozen them, but you have done a lot of repair and healing around them too. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for asking that question. Yeah, well, my understanding of trauma, I think very similar to yours, is is a or, or what happens during trauma is that we have this process of memory that we have short-term memory and long-term memory. I'm, I don't remember exactly where in the brain they're stored, but there's this process called long-term potentiation that moves short-term memory to long-term memory and long-term short-term memories, more vivid long-term memories are more distant. They kind of like almost like watching a, a movie or something in your mind, but they, they aren't necessarily as emotionally charged. I'm no expert here, so so I'll caveat what I'm saying with that. What happens during trauma, during an experience like you described, is that process gets disrupted. And essentially, these memories get put into 
some sort of limbo. And so then when there's a, a trigger that activates that neural pathway that where you remember this memory, it is not so distant. It hasn't been packed away neatly in long-term mm-hmm. memory. It is it is there near and present because it this pathway has been disrupted. And 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 sometimes these you know, traumas can be dissociative where it feels like reality, right? that it's not very distant. We're not surrounded by where we are right now, but we're in that memory. And and to get in touch with and move that trauma, well, in order to move something or change our relationship with something, we first have to have a relationship with it. And that's where I think this, the first step of, of my own journey with processing my trauma came from was just the understanding that the hope that came from the psychedelic journey around, like, this is my, my way of being the, the at my core, this trauma isn't who I am. Coming with that hope and the understanding that I have to lean into it was, was the start of the journey. And so having a relationship with my trauma opened the ability for me to move that trauma to a place where it wasn't so triggering anymore. And then also build the resourcefulness within to, to get in touch and iterate closer and closer to that place that I felt on that psychedelic trip. That, that was extremely powerful for me. And I, I basically just tried to work backward from that feeling. Mm-hmm. So if you were to, let's just take it in a therapeutic context. Mm-hmm. What, if, if you're willing to share an example, what is a, a way that a therapist was able to help you, right? And again, we don't want to gloss over like this is like there was one moment where a therapist helped you do something and then it's gone forever, right? But just an example of a time that a therapist was able to help you make some sort of measurable progress around looking at something that was really hard in your past and mm-hmm. in some way reconciling it. Like I, I don't, yeah. maybe, maybe another way of saying it is you probably identified as I am flawed, I am broken, et cetera, yeah. and, and are able to distance yourself from that. So like, how, how has your therapist been supportive around making that shift? Yeah, beautiful question. I'll give a more recent example here. Sure. I'm no, not really a particular expert on EMDR, and that process that I described, you know, is more of an EMDR. It's what it attacks. It it like helps facilitate that process. Which, by the way, one one more interesting nugget here is that long term potentiation occurs during REM sleep. So mm-hmm. PTSD often disrupts REM sleep, and therefore disrupts this process. And so EMDR is attempting to replicate this process in which you have rapid eye movement. They use like buzzers often or sounds or tapping to replicate the rapid eye movement to put your body, your brain into a state where long-term potentiation can occur. So I'm a big fan of it. I think honestly, you know, after what that did was help really clear out like and surface up a lot of these traumas. What has, what has been, more impactful recently has been somatic work. And so going back to what we were talking about with what I mentioned about how we're just nervous systems attached to brains, all of these traumas and these beliefs specifically that I'm worthless, the ones that I have that are core to me or that I'm, I'm gonna, I'm a failure. I'm never going to, to succeed. Everyone's going to know that nobody likes me and I am bad. These all store as, energy in the body right mm-hmm. and and each of them has some sort of energetic 
bent associated with it. And by getting in touch with that feeling at the intellectual level, we can bring up the, the, the feelings within our body, the somatic sensations that are associated with that feeling. And what was really an aha moment for me was not just feeling the bad, but feeling more of the good that I've been able to feel recently and getting in touch with that, what that, you know, often what that feels like to me, the way I describe it is this sense of wholeness, the sense of being able to take care of myself, feeling wonder and possibility. And, you know, what I, and there's, there's a story between, you know, from how I got from like the EMDR to here, but the, the moment in therapy that was really an aha moment recently was that that sense of wholeness is also somatic sensation within my body. And for me, it feels like it, what I'm doing right now is putting a hand on my heart. That is a an anchor, a somatic anchor for me that helps me feel that sense of wholeness. And so in these moments when I'm feeling those those really negative beliefs about myself from the trauma, calling in some of that wholeness by, by reminding my nervous system of the wholeness, like helps change my psychology. That was like a huge aha moment for me because instead of trying to like starting at the physiological level, instead mm-hmm. of trying to just operate at the psychological level, that it was a real unlock. Yeah. I know that, you know, that that's been a big unlock for me as well is starting at the physiological level, or I think a, a really common way that our lives are looked at, which you've described in your own journey is that if we do enough things in our life, you know, get the best job, make good money, have a nice house, have a great relationship, then it's going to bring inner peace. And what a, a lot of what somatics does, it, it actually orients us towards, well, inner peace is a state that lives within us. And we can move through, if we if you call it wholeness, inner peace, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's accessible at any given time. And doing life that way is in my experience, a lot more generative than hunting for it with accolades and status and things like that. So that's, that's certainly one thing I'm hearing. Yeah. There's, so there's another reflection I have. You're familiar with Gay Hendricks. I know this. He's, he's a past guest on, on the podcast and he talks about how if you look at different emotions, we can color the primary ones as anger, sadness, joy, there's, there's a million other things that we could talk about, but let's just say the broad spectrum of emotions. He says that in our inner landscape is almost just like one faucet, meaning if we shut ourselves off from feeling anger and pain, we also shut ourselves from feeling joy. And the, the reflection that I'm hearing from you is that when you're able to more uh, build the capacity to host the quote unquote negative emotions, it actually helps you feel better too. You're, you're able to, you can't choose one or the other. They're inextricably tied to each other, Yeah, which has been, that's been a big aha for me too, is in, in addition to somatics being this big aha where so much of what we want in our life comes from our body and our nervous system. And it's not all conjured up in the mind, learning that we if we feel the full spectrum of emotions, that's going to give us more happiness, joy, contentment, et cetera. And 
trying to self-select the emotions that we are okay with and the ones we are not okay with is a futile and seems like pretty dangerous game in my estimation. So I wanted to put all that in there. And the, the question after all my reflections, Yash, because I actually have two, but I'll start with, with this one. You, you strike me as a very trusting person. And I imagine, like, I, I feel like when I talk to you, you, you trusted me for, it didn't take that long for you to trust me. I don't, I don't know why, what, you know, how you would describe it, but I make up that it didn't take that long. And I also imagine that trusting people was probably really hard for you, especially men. And I'm yeah. a man. Yeah. So would you describe yourself as a, a trusting person? And if that feels like it was taken away from you, how did you start to repair that? Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful question. I think I am a trusting person. You know, some of this is, I I tell myself, I make up that I've been through such bad shit that like, if someone judges me in my better moments, it, it's like, I, I don't really care if someone judges me for my story or whatever. Like there, there's just very little that anyone could do to hurt me that I haven't already been through. And, and so I think some of it is just like, you know, like it, it, it feels like I didn't really get to have a childhood. And so some of what like I get to like inhibit this adult body, but also have the wonder of being a child. I, I think that's part of my experience of, of what it's like to be, re to really be me right now is to, is to know that like, I feel like I, I get to explore my, what it, it's like to be Yash in a way that a child would right now without any real guilt around it. Cause I didn't get to do it as a kid. So, so maybe there's some, maybe there's some naivete in there. I don't know. It hasn't backfired on me yet. I think the, you know, the other thing, which is a, a really good point that you made is that this is, this is something that I had to develop and it all, a lot of it started with me trusting myself. And, and that came from, I think a really deep exploration of my own inner landscape. So along with reading, I also, I, there's a really good Tim Ferriss podcast where he talks about silent meditation retreats. And I listened to this and, and, and just decided you know, that I had to go on one. So I did my first 10 day silent sit in 2018, which was like, oh my God, just one of the most incredibly difficult things I've ever done in my life just like facing the rawness of my own experience and my inner, my, my nervous system at that level with no, no numbing or no way to escape. It was, was incredible and terrifying. And you know, what I learned from it really, really Mike is that like, it, it was this deep core understanding that, that there are people in my life that care about me and I guess I just have a very little, very little tolerance for, for those that, that do not. And one way to filter for the type of person that I want to spend time with is to be extremely vulnerable about my situation, about, about myself and, and have that level of conversation and interaction with those around me. So there are actually, there, there are numerous like instances of, of, me opening up and, and being vulnerable and it not being very well received. But I, I just spend, 
I try to spend very little time consuming things that give me that take away my energy. And I found this to be a great filter. And this is the level of conversation that enriches me. And the type of person I want to surround myself with is one that is, you know, tr- trust me and that, that I trust. And I found that in order to, in order to filter for that, that I, you know, we often need to open up. And so I, I choose to, to take on that role, but a lot of, a lot of the, the reason that I'm able to do it, I think is just because like, I, I feel through those experiences of understanding my own inner landscape that there is this resource within myself of of wholeness and reliance. There's a, there's a strong self-reliance, which has now become a core tenet of my coaching. I, I, I think that's like probably the principal tenet of it. And there's a lot that goes into it. And I really appreciate you calling out self-awareness because it's a competence and a f- faculty that I really try to cultivate. Self-awareness builds, I think, the ability to be compassionate with yourself if once you really accept and understand where you are, which builds the ability to trust yourself once you're compassionate with and understand your situation. And and I think as a result of that, you know, I and and frankly, you know, like this isn't all just me. I've been surrounded by incredible people that I'm very thankful to call dear friends who have supported me through every step of this journey and, and partners too, former partners, current partners that, that support me and, and, and really want the best for me. And I think as a result of seeing things that were just so awful, but then also experiencing almost as a dichotomy, like the, the love that we're capable of, it's made me very, very trusting and, and very, I, I desire to put more of that into the world. So I don't know if that was a great answer to your question, but yes, it was. <laughs> I love it. I think it was a fantastic answer. And there's a couple, you know, when I said I had two questions, I went the trust route. I was, I was curious to hear how you would describe your essence, but maybe I'll just, I'll just plant that in there as a, as a background question. Because what I'm curious about now is how you how you arrived at coaching. You started to touch on what you think is central to your coaching. And I don't know, it seems really plausible that based on how amazing therapy has been for you and how supportive it's been in your own healing, that you would want to be a therapist. And you and I have had some really interesting conversations about the distinctions of coaching and therapy. Still have probably very messy, not polished answers. But what what you probably do have a more polished answer to is is why did you decide to go down the route of coaching and not therapy when therapy has been so supportive in your own healing journey yeah yeah great question i sort of happened into the coaching route you uh, therapy was really extremely supportive of my journey i and i decided to go work in it you know i i as i was at you know my my as I was at Bain, my first job, seeing a therapist, there were so many barriers to getting care. It was, I had excellent insurance. I had, so so the cost was taken care of. I was able to access basically whoever I wanted, but I still had to go see a therapist at 6 p.m. on a Friday. And it was in person and most people didn't work, you know, past 5 p.m. And I didn't really know how to choose the right person for me. I think I got very lucky. And what I realized as I did more research was that there's 
similar to the concept of a food desert, there's a mental health desert. And so I went and worked at, I think what I, what I have, I've worked in healthcare professionally for many years and I, I became very jaded with the system. It seems like there's very little incentive for the incumbent players to change how it works. And the incumbent players, the government and big insurance companies and in working at, so that's why I went the technology route. I worked at a company called Talkspace and helped help take them public. And the goal was to basically lower the barrier to access mental health care, really quality mental health care and therapy uh, and psychiatry by lowering the cost and then increasing the availability that, like to access. So it was virtual, all virtual based, text and video based, and then cheaper. But you know, what I found in my own experience with therapists, and I know this to not be true now, but I'll speak from experience, was that there were there were there was sort of this upper limit that I felt when I hit therapy. And a lot of it was driven by the boundaries of the insurance system and what insurance would pay out for. So there came this point where I, you know, like I feel like I had pretty developed some good resourcefulness within myself to handle you know, my own experience of the world and, and my trauma. And, and what I transitioned to was instead of moving away from something that I was scared of, move, desiring to move towards this inspiring vision for my life that I wanted to live. And what I found when I brought that to my therapy sessions was not really the support that I needed. It was very, it felt like one piece of the puzzle, like the questions I was being asked were like, are you anxious about this? Or are you, are you depressed or, or whatever? Like very basic sort of diagnosis focused questions that weren't really hitting at the core of the problem, which was there was a different set of competencies that I needed to have in order to build towards something that I really cared about. And so I, I ended up taking a, a peak performance psychology course for, for about a year highly recommend it. It's through, it used to be called Optimize. Now the company is called Heroic. And essentially what it is, is, is a, a master's degree in flourishing and, and how to do that. And this was just transformative for me because it took the piece of the one piece of the puzzle that I, I feel like I had unlocked, which is sort of how to manage around my own mental health, but then added in all these other tools that I felt like were really necessary. Like accountability, habit formation, philosophy, like physiological fundamentals around like nutrition, breathing, sleeping, eating, moving, all that stuff. And, and painted a holistic picture of here's like a pretty good 80, 20, 80, I don't mean to be jargony, but like a decent overview of like what it means to live a good life right now. That wasn't prescriptive about like, this is what it means to live the good life. And I found that, you know, that is what, as a result of that, I started working with some other people, some friends, and I didn't realize that this course at the time was actually a coaching certification. And, and that's how I sort of stumbled into it. And, and what I found with coaching, at least the reason I like it a lot more right now is that I, I'm excited to work with people on building towards something. And I think there's tremendous there's absolute tremendous value in therapy and the work that therapists are doing. I think I may still go down that route at some point, 
but but frankly like there's such a lack of supply of therapists and so many people that need mental health care that i think there's this emerging market of people that are able to help a middle medium to low acuity spectrum of client that don't need to be li- like licensed clinicians and and we really need licensed clinicians to focus on the severe acuity end of the spectrum because there's there's really a lack of supply there. So yeah, that that's really what drew me to coaching was was desiring to work on sort of moving towards an inspiring future and and and, and not so much like you know moving away from conditions that we don't like, mm-hmm. which I it, I think is you know it's an imperfect framing and and I don't mean to say that therapy is all about moving away from things we don't like. So yeah, let me let me stop there. Yeah, it's it's as good a framing as any, I think. And I I'd be curious to hear in your business with your clients, what are what are some exciting futures that you're helping people move towards? Or and if you look at it in your own life, you know, what have what have been some possibilities in your own life that coaching has helped you move towards? Yeah, I'll, I'll speak for my own life and then for some from my, my clients because I I love what my clients are doing. Uh, I think for me, it's, you know, there's a, there's a version of my life that I'd like to live. That is, that is more time wealthy where, you know, I have enough. And and this is, these are some realizations I got through psychedelics and the meditation retreat of what enough really means to me. And I think that's a wonderful exercise for, for people do. I do it with some of my clients, like really defining what enough is because if we don't have that barometer, then we're, we don't really know what we're optimizing for. And we can get sucked into this endless growth mythology that pervades society. And enough for me is actually not that much. You know, it's, it's, it's pretty achievable. And, but along with that, I have some, w- w- one thing that I'd like to do, and I really like the way that Ramit Sethi talks about this, living your rich life. My rich life looks like every year taking two months off, working for 10 months, and then taking two months off every year to not work, to unplug and travel and experience the world. My rich life means having four to five hours each day where I can connect with the people around me and be away from technology. It means working with people on inspiring missions and making a big impact in the way that they are doing their work and the way that they live their lives. This really inspires me, a life filled with freedom and flexibility and impact. And and so that's what I'm moving towards pretty pretty doggedly. And and a lot of my clients agree with that. I don't think any of us think very differently from that. In my experience, most people desire some degree of, of these different elements in their lives the ways those manifest can be very different. So I'm working with a few startup founders and working with a partner at a consulting firm who's working in, in technology and pro-social, specifically pro-social applications of technology. I'm working with a another solopreneur, freelance consultant, who's also a coach on his journey and on, on this path. I, so I'd say that a lot of many different manifestations all sort of centered around the desire to to bring themselves into in service of 
something greater than themselves in a way that's authentic to them. Uh, this I'm having so much fun in this conversation, man. And I, I think one of the things I want to say about enough is that like a lot of the other states that we were talking about where it's, it's not something that needs to be found or an amount that needs to be captured on an Excel spreadsheet, enough is something that can live in our body too, right? It's, yeah. it's, a, it's an interstate that we can feel. And that's been you know my temptation, the mind's temptation in general seems to be to, to find the amount that's enough. And then there's mm -hmm. lots of cool articles about that. I think in the New York City area where I live, per individual, the amount that where it, there's an escape velocity of, you know, making more money doesn't seem to uh, note. Also notice how I go right to a money for enough, right? Yeah. There's a, there's a natural bias as a society to think about enough in terms of money. But uh, there seems to be past high two figures. I think it's like 85 to 90,000. There's not much correlation of happiness once earning at a higher level. So yeah. earning a hundred thousand or a million dollars, there's not, much of a correlation of person with a million dollars is a much happier person. In my experience, enough being in the body and just feeling like, man, even if I ran out of money and ran out of a lot of things that I have previously valued so much in my life, I just feel enough in my body. Yeah. Like I am enough. I have enough. There is enough. And adopting those behaviors is... Or and, and those states of being is so fucking powerful, man. It's like, I I yeah. wish I wish I could have I wish I could just implant that into every human body on this planet right now. I'll also add, I'm reading this book. Uh, have you heard of the book, The Soul of Money? I you've told me about it. I yeah, heard a little bit. Yeah, tell well, me more. It's it's by Lynn Twist, and mm -hmm. she does a lot of charity work, and it's with two organizations called The Hunger Project and the Pachamama Alliance. And I'll shorthand by saying the combination of those two is working to end world hunger and to get humanity in, in more right relationship with the environment, with nature, and reclaiming our inherent kind of oneness with nature, right? That we're not separate. And it's, it's a myth that we are separate. Mm. But she talks, she talks a lot in the book about sufficiency and share some really powerful illustrations and stories about people of no means at all. People in Bangladesh who have no money to speak of and very little little ties or things that they can hang their hat on in the material world. But when, when given an opportunity to be empowered and listened to and in community with other people, like even in a in a 10 minute guided visualization, if everyone drops in together and can feel into what's the worlds that we want to live in, or what's the what's the community that we all want to create here, that enoughness, it just it emerges if if people yeah. are in touch with what matters to them. So I really look at sufficiency and enoughness as not dependent on the resources that we have. Although Resources are really helpful. I don't want to diminish the, the impact that a large amount of money can have, but rather that sufficiency, as, as certainly eloquently described in the book, The Soul of Money, is a state that can be cultivated by any person regardless of their means and resources that are 
available to them. And and it's so it's such an empowering way to be to to adopt that type of mindset. So I wanted to share that. And maybe another question I have behind this, Yash, is what are some ways that you look at flourishing? Like I love that word and you talked about flourishing. But what is yeah. what is it for you? So I'll give the like what it actually means. And then I think what it means to me. So what it actually like the definition of flourishing is it it it's, it means Aristotle used this word eudaimonia, and that loosely translates to moving about your life with a joyful sense of meaning and purpose. And I think the operative terms there are joyful and purpose, right? And it's so it's having a deep understanding and sense of what you care about and but it, within the context of joy. And that's been really meaningful for me. I, I think I I operated under these definitions of what was important to me and what I cared about, but none of them gave me joy. And I think that's such a powerful framing. So these things around, around money or having, you know, to, to your point around sufficiency, I used to define sufficiency around having plenty of money and having like tons of friends and having a beautiful partner it's like lots of external definitions and measures of worth, but they didn't actually give me joy. And the things that give me joy and what flourishing means to me is like, it, it is a lot of what I described earlier in like the rich life. It's, it's being able to live somewhere where I have access to nature, being able to engage with a community of people that I really care about being able to like, engage in have the time to engage in the things that give me energy like I, I enjoy playing sports being outdoors reading learning playing video games like be just having time to explore the things that I'm passionate about and play without any or aim there that's really what it looks like to me I think right and 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 you know I used to have a very when I was a kid I <laughs> I thought that like it was going to be my job to save the world, do something like really incredible, like make that level of impact. And so I've had to unlearn that a lot of that is coming from ego. And I still care about making an impact and there's no reason that it can't be big. But what really what I found a lot more joy in is seeking ways to make impact now, as opposed to kicking that into the future with some desire for it to be grand and large that, that that's really, I think what it means to me and, and to, you know, to put it simply, it's like the, the way that I think I give myself in service to the world is through uh, holding for, for what I feel like I've been able to cultivate is a this resilience and ability to hold space for awful things for almost anything. I feel that people can come to me with almost anything going on in their lives and I will be able to support them and hold space. And, and this is the current manifestation of that coaching. I don't know what that looks like in the future. And that's part of flourishing for me is, is like not necessarily having an attachment to a form, but it's more of a, of a feeling. Yeah. Yeah, man. I, that's something that I've, certainly notice in a lot of people that I look up to and admire is there's a there's a liberation and freedom of this is what life looks like right now this is what matters to me right now and that 
probably is going to evolve a lot in the next five years, but there's a, there's a natural kind of zest and appetite for life and awe and wonder and joy that it's, it doesn't become like, man, that's so disorienting and terrifying. I need, I need to know the plan. I need to know my five-year vision is going to look this way. It becomes like a beautiful unfolding of life happening and like a joyous ride. And I, I love that. Yeah. I love it. A joyous ride. That, I think that's a great way to put it. That is, but if we can feel into our lives as a joyous ride, that's probably a pretty good approximation for flourishing. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a million things, Yasha, we could probably continue to talk about, but I know that we're starting to at least push up on the time boundary. So I'm wondering if there's anything else that feels important for you to bring into the conversation right now. And otherwise, I'll, I have a few more things to go over with you and, and we'll start to bring it towards a close here. Yeah, I think there's there's one other thing that I want to say, which we talked about a little bit earlier. Part of the reason I want to share my story and, and, and part of the story I want to share, a key element of it that I'm not sure I hit on was that there's I don't think I'm an exceptional person in in any way and what i mean by that and i think we talked about this a little bit is not to say that i i don't have exceptional qualities and a capability to serve but rather that there's nothing like magical or like genetically unique about me in a way that is has like made me uniquely able to handle the challenges that are that are coming up and really what is the, it's really the mundane that has helped me so much. And I think what is true for everybody, these like taking care of my body, making sure I get enough sleep, making sure I'm eating good food, making sure I move and and, and spend time and cultivate community and connection and gratitude. These are all universal fundamentals that have helped me get where I am. And we'll, I know will continue to serve me on my journey. So I, I think I just wanted to, to to make that point that there's really no magic bullet to flourishing. It's rather just a practice of constant work, and it's a path. And and really, our goal should be to continue to take steps on the path instead of trying to find a destination. And everyone is walking that path right now. So I. I know we touched upon it a little bit early in the podcast, but I felt that felt important to reiterate. No, very well said. It's it's easy to hide behind, like for example, if we look at the NBA, the basketball players, it's easy to say, I'm never gonna be LeBron James. And that's yeah. probably true for ninety-nine point nine 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 percent of of all of us. But when it comes to the work that you and I are doing, it's accessible to anyone. Like an, yeah. anyone can do the healing. It's it's not because we are uniquely gifted and special. It it is just the chop wood, carry water mentality and doing the yeah. work, getting the reps. And I love the way that you phrased it. So thank you for saying that. And I wanna I wanna pose to you the question that you sent me in preparation for the conversation. This is another one of my pre-screening questions. And it's what's one question you would love to be asked? And you gave yourself a doozy. You gave yourself a hard one. <laughs> but I trust that given the flow of this conversation, that it's going to be a profound and beautiful answer. So if you remember the question that you wanted to be asked, and I'll ask it right now, is what's one thing about you that, if known, would let someone truly see you? 
Yeah. Thank you for asking it. It is a doozy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I touched on it a little earlier. It, it's that my experience of my life, it feels like my life as it is now, chapter three started, I'm 27 now, so six years ago. And that my experience of life right now is very different. It's almost childlike in a sense that everything feels so new, which is a double-edged sword. There's tremendous beauty in that, in that I think, I feel like I get to experience and want the wonder of what it's like to, to be alive and, and in like in the modern world, which is absolutely incredible in many ways and experience that through a lens of, of sort of like of newness, almost like with a naive experience of in, in mm-hmm. a way. The other side of that is that so many things feel new that I'm often, it, it often just feels exhausting to live my life in that I'm, I feel like I'm trying to figure out how to, to do all of these things in a compressed period of time, how to like flourish and be an adult and, and, and I don't know, be in a relationship, just like the common things. Mm-hmm. I, I have a story that like, I've had less time to figure this out and that there's some urgency to get it done. So that's what it really, that's what my experience is like that. Mm -hmm. If someone really knew me, they would know that. Mm -hmm. Well, I I hear a lot of beauty in that and, and moving through life in a childlike way is something that a lot of folks aspire to. So uh, saying all of this, and I do have a reflection I want to share with you at the end, because I, I think that your story is really powerful juxtaposed against someone else who's coming to mind. But uh, I'll, I'll sprinkle that in as a little teaser for folks that I'll, I'll put in the sign off. If I don't do it, you have permission to remind me. I just have a couple of more rapid fire type of questions that you could take as long as you would like to answer them, but uh, are kind of the quick hitters that I ask usually at the end of every interview. And I would love to start by asking you, what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? I love, I absolutely love showering. (laughs) (laughs) Like a warm shower right before bed. Oh, so good. Yeah. Beautiful. When you hear the word success, who's the first person that comes to mind? And, And what does success mean to you? It's the tough. I... Who does come to mind? Brian Johnson comes to mind. He's the the guy who founded Optimize, now Heroic. And you know, he, he's a serial entrepreneur who loves philosophy. And I think he's a, a beautiful example of someone that is has meaning taken meaningful steps on the path to flourishing, where he 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 spends his time doing what he loves, which is like being a philosopher, collecting wisdom and and then putting it into practice. And, and that's what I, I really admired about him. And I, you know, I think what th- that translates into what success means to me, which is a it's the the feeling of sufficiency, the persistent feeling of sufficiency. I think that is what success is. Mm-hmm. I love that. So where would you invite folks to connect with you? I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. And then also, if you wanted to share a little bit about the organization that you want to raise awareness for, which is the Mid-Atlantic Vipassana Association. I would love to. Yeah. So people can connect with me through my website. There's a contact 
there's a, there's a couple ways to contact me. My favorite is to just book time on my calendar so that we can have an actual conversation. So Mike, I think you have the website, but I can send it to you as well. Please share that out. Yes. Yeah. And, and the Mid-Atlantic Vipassana Association. So they're a part of an organization called Dhamma, D-H-A-M-M-A, which is the, the Buddhist, the Pali word for Dharma. And what that, what, what they do is, so Dhamma runs completely free, silent meditation retreats throughout the world. And they do advocacy work and humanitarian work. And globally, they're founded in India by a guy named S.N. Goenka. And the, the whole idea here, which is really incredible, is to replicate the, like, textbook experience of what it is to be a, a Buddhist monk or nun. And so when you sign up for these retreats, they're completely free and they include lodging and food, like home cooked meals, three meals a day. And, and, and you, the expectation is that you come in and work and you meditate for 10 hours a day. And, you know, I think it's just such an incredible organization experience. I remember when I signed up, I was kind of worried like that this was a cult or something. Like, why are they giving away all of this for free? Like, am I going to be indoctrinated into something? But one tenant of Buddhism is to relinquish material possessions. And as part of that, Buddhist monks and nuns are supposed to beg for their food. And so, and, and beg for their living arrangements. They don't pay for any of it. And they're trying to replicate that experience in the modern day by by not having you pay for it, these things, you can't complain about them, right? And it's not like the, the living quarters are bad in any way. They're great and comfortable. But I, I really love this organization because it's so it's so equitable. And then it's it's also around like that they're trying to create the conditions such that people can do this really, really important work of getting in touch with their inner landscapes and removing, it's a different way of being, removing yourself from the world of, disconnection and distraction, constant sources of, of content that are trying to steal your attention. And so this is one arm of, of the Dhamma organization. And I, I, I donate money. I would love for, for your listeners to explore it and consider donating if they're interesting, if they're interested, because it's also expensive to run these retreats mm-hmm. and, and do it for free. So yeah, that's what they do. Well, at the very least, you'll get one donation and that'll be from me. So I will, of course, enlist the support from listeners as well. I'll, I'll put this in the introduction as well, but I think it's always helpful to have context. And when, when we hear stories, we're probably more likely to give. So I want to invite you to share a little bit about why it's meaningful to you. And it certainly makes me want to go. So hopefully I'll be an attendee at some nice. point. Yeah. Well, Yash, the the final question, and I will remember to do a reflection after, but the final question I'll ask you in this interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And in so many ways, you've you've answered this already, but I'll give you another chance to to talk about what it means to you to live a meaningful life. So the, the final question is, what does it mean to Yash to live a meaningful life? Thank you for asking this question. I've thought a lot about it. It, it It's... It's but it's living by a set of values that are core to me, and those values are are freedom, flexibility, service, intent, and love. Mm. If I had to pick one, at the core of it all, it would be love, and and really that's the work of my life is to 
operationalize love? How do we take it from this ideal that sits up on the wall and bring it into our lives? Mm-hmm. If, if there isn't a more Yash phrase to use than operationalizing <laughs> love, I, I don't know if there is, but there's uh, the, the data and the head-driven guy <laughs> and the heart guy. They're, they're inextricably woven together. And I, <laughs> I love that we got a lot of flavors of that. So Yash, the reflection... I want to share how I experienced you too, because I I just deeply admire you and I'm so grateful for our friendship. But something that was coming to me as as you spoke about the real trauma and pain of your childhood, and and I juxtaposed it against, I don't know too much about his story, but I I was thinking about how Michael Jackson had, Mm. he didn't get to live his childhood either. And this is not at all dismissing his actions. But I think what it points to is he probably did next to zero healing work. He, that guy was one track mm-hmm. on perform, be successful, make great art, did no healing work. From my understanding, did not have a childhood. And mm-hmm. as a result of that, he, in, he lashed out in a lot of ways and inflicted pain of, of, among other children because he didn't live a childhood. So I've, yeah. that's not why, but that's one of the expressions of what happens when we don't process and metabolize what has happened to us yes. as, as conscious beings is that we inflict the same wounds that we were given. I'm sure that's what happened with your father as well onto okay. the other people in our lives. And so it's a real testament to the work that you've done and, and the person that you are that we moved from the really painful origins of your story to talking about flourishing and the the worlds that we're creating and, and wanting to live your rich life. And I don't think it's possible to nearly wonder any of that without doing lots of work. So um, I'm so grateful that you and I have connected. I'm so grateful that we were able to have this conversation in this moment. Your story moved me in a lot of ways and I think is inspiring for Folks, no, no matter what they have or haven't been through in their life, there's so much useful information that you walked us through in this conversation. And man, what a, what a privilege it is to be able to host conversations like this and and to be your friend. There's there's like nothing like it. So I'm I'm deeply in gratitude and bow down to you. And man, it brings me talk about joy. It, it brings me so much joy to have these these meaningful conversations and and our friendship. We've spoken about so many things that we didn't record that I think would be fun to get to in another conversation. I love the way your brain works. I love the way your heart works. And I, and I love you. I love you too, brother. Thank you so much. And I, I was just reflecting as you were talking on my own energy right now, you know, I blocked out an hour after our call thinking that I'd be exhausted and you need some time to recover, but I feel so energized. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to really speak openly and and holding such an amazing and and safe space to to allow me to share some some pretty painful things about my past openly and and I think it's an amazing result to feel energized coming coming out of this conversation so I love you too man and yeah, yeah I appreciate the opportunity yeah yeah so for everyone who's listening I you know, I, we had a lot of warnings in the beginning of the episode, but I, I'm leaving feeling really energized too. So if you stuck with us past the warnings of this, it might get a little bit gnarly, then I, I hope that you're leaving feeling energized like me and Yashar. 
my my wish for everyone like the med one of the meditation prayers that i know in, in a meta meditation is may you be happy may mm. you be safe may you be free from suffering and may you live your life with ease and one of my wishes is that everyone can experience the joy of what it is to be alive because i know deep in my being that being conscious on this planet is fucking extraordinary and there's also a lot of pain and suffering in the world and so Anyway, I, I say all that to say I, I want to send everyone who's tuned in lots of love. Thank you so much for listening and have a good rest of your day or evening. Take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.